It's been a while since we've been in Hebrews, but uh, we're going to continue uh, our study in the book. Um, we are going to have one sermon in Hebrews 13 today, uh, and then uh, one more uh, in a few weeks. So we've been in Hebrews for quite some time. I'm a bit nostalgic about it now. I've loved to hear the voice of the author of Hebrews and his challenge to me regarding uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think his message is one uh, that we in our world need to hear time and time again. And so it's been a great joy for me to be able to learn from this. And I look forward to two more weeks uh, in this book, Hebrews chapter 13 today. A few weeks ago now, it's been, uh, been some time before Pastor Daniel, before Thomas spoke to us, uh, we started into what I called the grand conclusion of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews' word of exhortation is so powerful, one might wonder how in the world is he going to wrap this book up and do justice to everything he's taught us about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his one-time sacrifice. And so uh, a few weeks ago, we started into that grand conclusion, and we looked at what I called six powerful verses that will uh, change the world and impact our church, or will impact our church and change the world if we're willing to obey them and apply them. In those verses, just as a review, you look at the first six verses, what the author of Hebrews does is he gives eight commands. He puts them in groups of two. It gives you four subjects or four topics that believers should focus on. So as you're looking in your Bible, you see the first thing the author of Hebrews says is that we need to love brothers and love strangers. He says in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. And then he says, do not neglect to show hospitality. And he gives us that, you know, that really interesting, curious little phrase, for you never know if you're entertaining angels unaware. Remember this passage? Remember this sermon a while ago? But these commands revolve around the concept of love. We should love brother and love strangers, showing hospitality to them. From that point on, he, he combines two commands. He says we should care for the afflicted. And then he says we should honor marriage and the marriage bed. And then fourth, he talks about the dangers of covetousness and the love of money. These are uh, six verses that are quite powerful that really were very practical to us as we look to live out new covenant lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to consider the next 11 verses, verses 7 through 17. And I think you'll find them very interesting. Have you ever looked for a church before? Some of you say, I'm looking right now. <laughs> Have you ever looked for a church before? A few weeks ago, I helped a, colonial, a former Colonial Baptist Church family try to find a new church where they had moved. It, had been, it was an overwhelming experience for them. They were having difficulties. They'd visited many different churches, and they were continually saddened or disappointed by what, by what they found in those churches. And so they contacted me, and, and they said something like this, Pastor, please help. Please help us. Perhaps you can relate to this. Today, as I look across this field, and I recognize that I'm addressing a few hundred people in this field and perhaps dozens others on video, I'm mindful that some of you are presently looking for a church. Others will be looking soon, and still others are advising friends or family members about it. Some military families move every two or three years ago. That's if they're lucky, or two, every two or three years. That's, that's if they get along 
uh, assignment. And out at the end of those times, they are always looking for new churches. Some young people here will soon make their own decision about what church they will join and be a part of. Some seminary families in our church will finish seminary soon, or maybe I should say eventually, hopefully. Uh, And when they do, God may lead you to join or pastor another church that's in a different area. Others will consider moving along to to different church for different reasons. Maybe you're overwhelmed at the thought of this, or someone you love is overwhelmed looking for a healthy church. Well, I want you to be encouraged this afternoon or this morning in this field, because our text is going to help you. Our text is going to help you with this. There's one important factor, there's many important factors, but there's one important factor in choosing a church uh, that we'll find in this text, and that is what kind of leaders the church has. That's what this whole passage will be about. And so as we come to Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 17, we dig in and we look for this mark of a healthy church. We start by noticing how the author arranges verses 7 through 17. I want to show you something in your Bibles. Hopefully you've got it. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 right at the beginning. Remember your leaders. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders. Okay? Remember your leaders. Obey your leaders. The author is doing something here. He's using something called an inclusio. An inclusio is where an author repeats a topic at the beginning and at the end of a section. So as we look at these verses, uh, to make this even more memorable for his readers, the author starts by addressing two commands uh, uh, about leaders in verse 7, and by starting those two commands with the same letter in the original. Because as you're looking at verse 7, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Those are the two commands. I'm sorry, it's verse 17. Verse 7, remember your leaders, and then go to the end of the verse, imitate remember and imitate in the original language, start with the same letter. It's alliterated. He does the same thing in verse 17. You look down at verse 17 and he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. In the original, they're starting with the same letter as well. Now, sometimes when an author gives an inclusio, he's just simply holding together a collection of different topics and subjects, but other times he's revealing to us what the whole section is going to be about. And I think that's what he's doing in this text. For instance, if you remember the Beatitudes, you remember the Beatitudes? Jesus and the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. He starts this way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and you finish it. For theirs is the... Okay, we got to do better than that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. (laughs) For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's the first of the Beatitudes. At the end of the Beatitudes, he ends this way. And I'm going to give you another quiz, so be ready for it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Here's your chance. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are about kingdom behavior, kingdom living. And so all of the Beatitudes in between are about kingdom behavior. Our passage is about Christian leadership. It's about Christian leadership. It it starts that way, ends that way, and what is in between is also about faithful Christian leaders. So with this in mind, I think our text really answers two basic questions for us. I've got a simple outline for you today. 
Um, the first question this text answers is, what do faithful Christian leaders look like? And the second question will be, what do I do when I find one? First question, what do faithful Christian leaders look like? Second question, what do we do when we find them? Okay, so we look at the first one. It, it's, it's in verses 7 through 16. What do faithful Christian leaders look like? I think the author describes them in two basic ways. Look at the beginning of verse 7 for the first description. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Faithful Christian leaders are ones who speak God's word to you. The author starts all of this, of course, with a command. He says, remember your leaders. The word remember is a word that he doesn't use very often. He only uses it in three places in the book of Hebrews. He uses it here and he uses it in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, he uses it in a way that I think is revealing to us of what this means. Remember your leaders. What does that mean? In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22 while on his deathbed, there was a man named Joseph who remembered, same word, he made mention of, it's translated in many Bibles, the Exodus. See, there were a lot of things that could have been on his mind when he's on his deathbed. What do you think you'll be thinking about on your deathbed? I sure bet it won't be the Exodus. But while Joseph is on his bed, he remembers God's promises regarding the fact that he will bring them out of the promised land. And so he makes mention of the fact that when God fulfills his promises, I want you to take my bones, take my remains with you out of here. And so with this word in our text, the author of Hebrews commands us that we must be contemplative. We must think about the ones who are leading us. Remember your leaders. Remember the ones leading you. That is that we must think of them, even when there are a lot of other things on our mind. We should be thinking about them. Now, right after this command, I think he describes the specific leaders that he's thinking of. So that's what that next little phrase is, that little subordinate phrase right after it. Remember your leaders, the ones who spoke God's word to you. Here, he is not talking about their governmental leaders in the city of Rome. He's not talking about political leaders. He's not talking about their leaders at work. No, he is talking about the leaders who spoke God's word to them. Throughout this passage, I think he answers both the questions I'm going to be dealing with today. How should we respond to faithful leaders and what do they look like? It's here I really want to emphasize what they look like. Faithful Christian leaders speak God's word to you. This is an absolute necessity. As you look for a good church or you counsel your friend or your family members about finding one, you should look for pastors who expose God's word to you. Some pastors impose their own thoughts and ideas on the word of God. They make it say what they want it to say. Instead, you should find someone who speaks this to you, the written revelation of God. Someone who makes it completely obvious in his sermon that it's not built on human ingenuity, but on the revealed words of God someone who does not impose, but who exposes the word to you. 
That's why at Colonial Baptist Church, with every fiber of our being, doesn't, re, doesn't matter who's in this pulpit, from week to week, this is what we strive to do, to preach expositionally through the text, one text after another text, after another text, and after another. We want to speak God's word to you. By the way, that doesn't mean that preaching will be boring or that it will feel like you're reading from a dry commentary. You ever read one of those big commentaries? Before you mock it, that's what I do for a living. I read commentaries. I'm a professional reader. I read those dry commentaries. Well, preaching doesn't have to sound like that. On the contrary, preaching that exposes God's word, you should expect it, if it exposes God's word well, for that preaching to be powerful. I'm mindful of, of Paul's philosophy that he, parta- that, he, uh, that he gives to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this, he said, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul admits, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And listen to this, he says, and my speech or my words were not in plausible words of wisdom. But, he says, in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul makes this, I think, even clearer later on in the book when he says, I'm going to come to Corinth, and when I come, I'm going to investigate not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And he says this, listen, he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk or words, but in power, in power. So faithful Christian leaders, they speak God's powerful words to you. I mean, it should go without saying, right? But I think we need to mention, you say, man, you're making a big point. Of, it should go without saying. But Colonial, we need to mention this. When people have itching ears and they're heaping to their, they're gathering to themselves preachers who will entertain them and make them feel good about their life choices. And we also need to say it when there are preachers who are using pulpits or little wooden tables to hang, uh, as A.T. Robertson said a hundred years ago, to to hang garlands for their own glory. This is a mark of faithful Christian leaders. They speak God's word to you. If you're ever looking for a church, make that a priority. I think he gets up there and tells stories about himself, his family, his life, all of his adventures, his heroes. He speaks God's word to you. Second, the second command that that Paul gives to the church is found at the end of verse 7. So look there in your Bible, verse 7, right? We're looking at the Bible. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The Hebrews were facing intense pressure to return to Judaism and abandon Christ. Remember the original context. So the author of Hebrews tells them to remember their, their leaders and emulate their faith the faith of their Christian leaders. The leaders I think the author has in mind here are the ones who had proven faithful to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and who had reached the end or had come to 
the outcome of their lives. So the author gives us, I think, another point here in this text about what faithful Christian leaders look like. They not only speak God's word to you, but number two, they also have a faith that is worth emulating. See, to be a faithful Christian leader, it does not just involve your preaching or teaching ministry, it involves your lifestyle. They have a faith that is worth emulating. At Colonial, we have a wonderful heritage of people who have spoken God's word to us and who have a faith worth emulating. This is not only true of the former pastors who've ministered here, and make no mistake about it, it is true of them by God's goodness and grace. Some of those pastors poured poured their lives into 10, 20, 30 years of ministering the word to you. And by God's grace in them, God sustained and strengthened their faith for those years. I think it's not only true of former pastors, it's also true of some of the lay leaders that you've enjoyed if you've been around here for any length of time. Some of these leaders have already gone home to be with the Lord. I think of people, of course, like Captain Olson, one that I was able to meet. But I hear powerful testimonies of others like Ray Knowles and Robert Upton and Edward Hahn and Jim Saunders and Walter Sims and Lindsay Copeland. So to you, Colonial Baptists, I say, consider the outcome of their way of life. Their faith is worth emulating. Imitate the faith of faithful Christian leaders. That's at this point in the text, though, where we've got to pick up speed a little bit, and we run into a very interesting verse, verse 8. The most interesting thing to me about verse 8 is why this is here. What is the author doing with verse 8? Look down in your Bible there. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To come to this verse, all throughout the week, it perplexed me. Why is the author moving so quickly in this section? I mean, he just talked about remembering your leaders, imitating their faith, and then he moves to Jesus for one verse, and then the next verse is about diverse and strange teachings. Why is he moving along so quickly? Is this an example of like a shotgun approach to topics at the end of a letter that we hear sometimes biblical authors do, you know, the grand conclusion? Is it like one firecracker after another after another and they're unrelated? I think some commentators believe that. Actually, most of the commentaries say that that's true. They think the author is just moving quickly from one topic to another that comes to his mind as he closes. But I think there's something more to it. I think that as you read this closely, there's a better explanation. I want to show it to you. So this is very important for the point of the sermon I'm going to make. So look in your Bible again at verse 7. There are two commands, one at the beginning. See it? Remember your leaders. One at the end. Imitate their faith. What's interesting to me here is the word order. You say, man, you really are, you know, a Greek geek. What's interesting to me is the word order. If I were going to give you those two commands, you know how I would do it? I would state the commands right up front. Remember your leaders, then I would give you a subordinate thought. That's what he does in verse 7. He says, remember your leaders, the one who preach God's or teach you God's word. But then I would start with the second one, right? Lining it up all parallel. I'd say, imitate their faith. So you get the point, and then I would give you the subordinate idea afterwards. That's not what the author of Hebrews does, and I'm glad he didn't do it that way. And so the question is, why in the end of the verse does he start with the subordinate idea, the subordinate description of their faith, and then add the command? 
It's such a unique way of writing. Why would he arrange things in this way? And I think it's because he did this so that he could close out verse 7 with the word faith. He does it in the original just like it is in many of your English Bibles. The last word in verse 7 is the word faith. And faith is at the end of verse 7, right besides verses 8 and following. I, th I think the author does this because he wants to tell you more about the nature of the faith of these leaders that is worth emulating. And so if you buy what I'm saying today, you could circle the word faith at the end of verse 7. You could draw an arrow down to verses 8 and following. I, I think the author is going to tell us two things about the nature of their faith that's worth emulating. And so in verse 8, we come to this verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I think the first description here is of the object of the faith of faithful leaders. Their faith centers on Jesus Christ, the changeless one. Now, after reading the book of Hebrews, again, I think this should be obvious. You know, if you're to get the author of Hebrews... And you'd ask him, hey, what sort, of, what sort of preacher should I be looking for? If you could interview him, what, what sort of religious leader should I listen to? I think he would say something like this. You should look for the, the man who says and makes much of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the founder of our salvation, the merciful and faithful high priest. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the faithful one over God's house, and he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think if he kept going, he would say he is one who makes much out of Jesus being the fact that Jesus is the forerunner on our behalf, the guarantor of a better covenant. He is the one seated at the right hand of the majesty of the throne in heaven. He is the minister in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith that we should keep our eyes focused on. And he is the mediator of a new and a better covenant. In our text that we're looking at here, he describes in this way, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think this verse affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. Only one being never changes. All other beings go through change, go through variation in their being. As God, though, Jesus will never change. And so I return to our emphasis, men and women. You, you can tell that you found a faithful Christian leader when you find someone who makes much out of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the center for this leader. Jesus is everything for this leader. This leader loves to talk about Jesus. This lo leader loves to preach about Jesus. And men and women, this leader's faith then in Jesus is worth emulating. If Jesus never changes, he's still the only center for saving faith. He was in the first century, and he is today. And so may I just say this, men and women, when you find Christian leaders like this who make much out of Jesus time and time and time again, you are some of the richest people in the world. 
I just think of this dear couple that you know, I've been talking to, and they're going from church to church to church to church to find a church that just opens the word and tells them about Jesus, explains Jesus to them. You find leaders like this, consider them and imitate their faith in the changeless, powerful Son of God. After that description of their faith in verse 8, I think the author moves into a longer section that emphasizes something else about the faith of these leaders. The way the author does it here is he introduces this idea by talking about what other teachers were expressing to his readers, the original Jewish readers. Look in your Bible at verse 9. And from this point on, we'll go a little bit quicker, so don't panic. Verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, meaning Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside the city of Jerusalem, in order to, and listen to this, this end of this part of this verse, in order to make holy, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In his original setting here, the author knows that his Jewish readers were facing pressure to abandon Christ for Judaism. Some people, some opponents of the author, whether they were friends of the readers or parents or false teachers, some people were pressuring them to leave Jesus for Judaism. So in this section, the author calls this sort of pressure, he calls it at the beginning, a diverse and strange teaching. He also says that this sort of teaching uh, draws away, draws you away from Jesus Christ. These false teachers were introducing other means than Jesus of securing God's favor. He also tells us in, the, in verse 9 that they tried to strengthen hearts by food. Do you see that in, in your text? They are appealing to foods to strengthen hearts. I think this appeal here, this reference to food, suggests that this is some sort of Jewish emphasis on dietary laws, or some of your Bibles even might translate this, ceremonial foods. Instead of these things, however, the author encourages his original readers to stick to what their faithful Christian leaders taught them about Jesus. These faithful leaders did not emphasize food. Instead, what do they emphasize? Something we should be good at here at Colonial. This answer should come to your tongue time and time and time again. They emphasized grace. You see, grace is what strengthens hearts. Grace is what provides real strength to followers of Jesus Christ, not legalistic lists of do's and don'ts. Not legalistic observation of certain Jewish feast days. That doesn't strengthen hearts. It never did. Not observing ritualistic rules of what to eat and what not to eat. Faithful Christian leaders make much of grace the gospel of grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Okay, so I want to stop for a moment. I'm going to keep going in this text, but I want to just make two applications for us here. I think this is 
not only true of the Jewish people who were pressuring them in their original setting, I think this can often be true even of evangelical preachers. Even some evangelical preachers try to impress you with some new gizmo, right? Some new trend or popular emphasis from their culture that is not Jesus Christ. We call them hipster preachers. Colonial, I would encourage you to run away from hipster preachers who always ride the latest cultural trends. It's not that your, your preacher must be fashionably clueless. Okay, it's, it's not that. I'm, I remember talking to a friend of mine not too long ago who's a pastor, and he's, he's boasting to me about the blue jeans that he had bought for $3. They had an elastic waistband, and he says, and they're just so comfortable. They're just loose all over. He says, such a good deal. I bought six pairs of them. I'm like, oh, man. It's not like they have to be fashionably clueless or uh, don't, please don't comment upon my clothes. However, some preachers reveal in, in, through their preaching emphasis that they're uncomfortable with preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. They're looking for the latest and greatest uh, sort of topic to draw in people's attention other than Jesus Christ. They say, run away from hipster preachers. But also avoid preachers who would rather focus on legalistic rules or laws as markers of true godliness. Again, it's not that we cannot preach rules or commands. The new covenant is actually full of commands that spring out of grace or our response to the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives. But if one is more prone to focus on rules of godliness than they are grace found in Jesus, you should keep looking. You should keep looking. The next verses in this text, we'll go through them quickly, I think, tell us more about the grace that strengthens, the grace that these original preachers would have preached. Look in your Bibles at verses 10 through 12. For we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See, the grace that they proclaimed is a grace that comes from Jesus' all-sufficient sacrifice. Seems likely to me as I come to this place in, in this passage that the opponents, this is my personal opinion, that the opponents were criticizing Christianity by saying something like this. They don't even have an altar. Look at those Jesus followers. They don't even have an altar. They've got nothing like the bronze altar in the temple. Nothing like the altars you can find in our synagogues around the world. Can you hear them? traditional Jews, they don't even have an altar, but the altar, or but the author objects here. The altar doesn't object, the author does. The author objects, yes, we do have an altar. Verse 10, but on our altar, there was one sacrifice that was offered once for all. Okay, so we learn more about the grace of these preachers. Their grace springs out of this all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. But then he continues, look at verses 13 and 14. 
It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This grace that the preachers proclaim is also grace that summons us to step out for Jesus and bear difficulties like the one that he bore. He suffered outside of the city. I think he's telling these readers, you need to be willing to come out as well. Perhaps come out of Judaism or the comfort and safety of Judaism. And you need to take a stand for Jesus Christ. He tells them you have two reasons why you should do that. Verse 14, because here you have no lasting city. Maybe he's describing any city in general or Jerusalem. Jerusalem's just about ready to fall, men and women, when he writes this. You have no lasting city. But you seek a heavenly city, one that is to come, the new Jerusalem. And then he continues in verses 15 and 16. Look there. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For with such sacrifices, or for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As he continues to describe grace that strengthens hearts, it's a grace that calls us to offer acceptable sacrifices. And uh, he uh, describes what that acceptable sacrifice is in these verses by challenging them to respond to the work of Jesus. He says, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips. It's a grace that calls us to offer acceptable sacrifices of praise. We talked about that in chapter 12, too. And of godly living, verse 16, doing good and sharing what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so what do faithful Christian leaders look like? They look like this. They speak God's word to us. And they have a faith that is worth emulating. A faith that centers on Jesus Christ and exalts his life-transforming grace that they know will strengthen your heart. But the author's not quite finished here. And so then neither are we. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and to submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What do you do when you find such strength in a Christian assembly? What do you do when you find such strength and commitment in living and preaching? When you find such faithful Christian leaders, the text says you need to obey them and submit to them. I think the second command more fully expresses the first. That's the type of obedience he's thinking about, submitting to them. These two terms stress the need for believers to put themselves under the oversight of their spiritual leaders. When you find them, what do I do? Obey and submit to them. And he gives you two reasons. These are very easy to see in your Bible. In verse 17, they're both marked by the word for in my translation. First reason you do it is for their sake. 
for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. Do you recognize your spiritual leaders will give an account to God for how they shepherded you? He continues, let them do that. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. Don't make it difficult on your spiritual leaders. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. And then he gives a second reason. See the second word for there, for. That would be of no advantage to you. It's, it's not only for their sake, it's for your sake. If you fail to submit to faithful Christian leaders, it doesn't matter how you do the math, how you factor it, it will in no way be beneficial for you. So when you find faithful Christian leaders, obey them, follow them. This was crucial for the original readers that were thinking about walking away from Christianity, but it's crucial for your well-being too. As I say this, I understand that you might feel some hesitancy to do so, and I think that hesitancy comes for a few reasons. I just wanna, I wanna mention a few of these that were on my mind this week. I think sometimes we might not want to follow spiritual leaders because we have been burned by other Christian leaders in the past. They have disappointed us, hurt us, in some cases abused us. And when that's just so sad, so sad when a Christian leader does that to a member in his assembly. And if that's happened to you, I, I'm so sorry for that experience. But I think that's where a careful reading of this text can help you. This text does not say submit to and obey spiritual leaders who, whose life does not match the word that they preach. No, we are to follow and obey faithful Christian leaders who speak God's word to us and whose faith is worth emulating. I think we also might not want to follow because our culture questions or rejects submission to any leader, especially a religious one. Our culture, the secular world, often calls us to cast off restraints, cast off leaders. Yet men and women, our culture does not submit to the Bible. They don't even often consider it. Their wisdom, to borrow a few words from the epistle of James, their wisdom is not a wisdom that comes down from above, but it is, and listen to what James says, it is earthly. It is sensual. It is, and depending on your translation, it is either devilish or demonic. It's not wisdom from above that our culture preaches. It's not wisdom from above that is pure. Listen to these descriptions in James. It's wisdom that comes from above is pure, peaceable. That's not what we're taught. That's not what's valued in our culture. Pure. Wisdom that comes from above is pure, peaceable, gentle. That's what the text says. Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and genuine or sincere. 
If our culture promotes rebellion against leaders, like governmental leaders who can punish us with imprisonments and fines, they have things to do to punish us. It should not surprise us if the secular world has no regard whatsoever for spiritual leaders. You see, it's hard for us to obey and to submit because these things are not popular or valued in our culture. I think we quickly make fun of hipster preachers. That's fun to do. We boldly question legalistic preachers. That smells like legalism. But I don't think we're as good with faithful leaders, obeying and submitting to them. And I think that might be because the last reason I think we're not good at it is because it's not natural for us to want to submit to anyone. It goes against our fallen sinful nature. I don't, I don't know about you, I don't like anyone telling me what to do. Yet I believe that God in his grace and goodness can not only convince you of the need to do this, but can empower you to submit to and obey faithful Christian leaders. Today we've learned two things. We've learned what faithful Christian leaders look like. And we've learned what we must do when we find them. If you're searching for a healthy church, or you know someone who is, tell them this. Tell them, find and follow faithful Christian leaders. Leaders who speak God's words to you. And leaders who have a faith that's worth emulating. One that makes much out of grace and one that centers on Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray together. As we close today, uh, I want to admit to you, perhaps you noticed as I was preaching, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to admit to you how difficult this sermon was for me to preach. Uh, let's just say there, there were a lot of things that I removed from the sermon. Perhaps some listening to me today would say there are a lot, lot more things you should have removed. Well, we'll leave that to God's evaluation. Difficult sermon for me to preach, but I hope that you understand that my heart is to help you and I hope that you will see over time through God's work in my own life that you will see my willingness to submit to other spiritual leaders in this assembly to come under, to obey them and submit to them as they proclaim God's words to me and as they have a faith that's worth emulating. My heart goes out for many of us who perhaps are struggling through the issue of where to find a church or help someone to find one. I pray, Father, that you would use this text to encourage them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.